Thank you, Kylie. I thought I would start by answering the question that everyone is dying to ask me uh, that's come out of the last three sermons that I've spoken. And the answer is yes. Yes, I did get the barbecue that I asked for for my birthday. And it seems as though the best way for me to get the things I want is to mention them in sermons. And so what I'm going to do over the next four weeks is I'm going to just mention random objects that I want and hopefully I will get them. So I'll be using them as sermon illustrations, and I really think that this will benefit me nicely. So I thought it would be helpful for us to recap what we have already learned in 1 Peter. In the first three sermons, we have focused on our identity, our identity in the light of who God is. Our identity is founded on the fact that we are children of God. And because we are now children of God, we are holy. Not only are we holy personally through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are holy as a church. And we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. No longer are we doing this on our own. We are a collective people. And this is how God intended it. And Peter has been helping us understand that God's church is built up on Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, and we are living stones being built on him into a spiritual house. And this spiritual house is where God has chosen to dwell. We have learned that as this church, as a royal priesthood, we offer spiritual sacrifices. And everything in our daily lives should become a spiritual sacrifice. How we live is a spiritual sacrifice. And as a result of our identity, we are in the minority. We are on the margins. We do not fit into our current culture. We can no longer identify as who we were before we became followers of Jesus Christ. This is not our home, and we do not live as though it is our home. So the question we have been asking is, how do we live as a minority? How do we live on the margins and hold fast to the gospel? And Peter, in the first part of this letter, is concerned that we prepare our minds for our action. He wants us to be prepared for what is to come. Because what is to come are various trials and sufferings are for a purpose. Our lives have a purpose as a royal priesthood. And so we need to be motivated by our identity to be distinctive and set apart in this difficult world that we live in. Why? Because our purpose is no longer about us. We know who we were before Christ. And we know where we are now in Christ. And for this reason, we are the ones that have been chosen by God to help those we love 
and those we care about to move from where they are without Christ to where they can be as part of the family of God. We have become a royal priesthood for them, for those we love, for those we care about, for those that are not yet believers yet. And our spiritual sacrifices are not for us. They are for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Help us to hear and receive your word today. Thank you that you love us now and that you see as us as your children now. Thank you that our identity is secure in you now through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. Read with me verse 11 and 12 again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is where I finished my last sermon, and so this is where we are going to begin today. It is a unique transitional point in this book of 1 Peter. Verses 11 and 12 are what we call a general truth that Peter is establishing for us in the way we should live. Peter explains that people will see what we do, our conduct will be on show to others. As Christians, we will be distinct and different in what we do and how we live. This is necessary as a a result of our identity. We cannot be part of the family of God, one who has been built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices and not be different from the world around us. When we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, there are going to be those who speak against us. And when they do, it better be because of your good deeds, not because your conduct is not really good at all and your lives are not honorable. We are to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and we are to keep our conduct honorable. But you need to understand that everything we do, everything that we're going to look at in the next four weeks, how we live, our good deeds, our conduct, does not make us right with God. What we do, our actions, how we live in this world, are not for our salvation. They do not save us. Peter has moved from being concerned about our salvation. He has already explained to us that our salvation is secure. It is kept in heaven for us. And now he's concerned about others and how God can use us to bring others into a relationship with him. We need to be so honorable around those who do not believe and who do not obey his word. Because even if they persecute you, 
On the last day, they will see your good deeds and glorify God. And Peter knew that his readers, both back then and also throughout history, in living a life as a Christian, would mean that they would be on the margins of their society. And therefore, this was going to produce for people suffering. Now, Peter wrote this letter around 62 AD. And in 62 AD, the Roman emperor at that time was Emperor Nero. And he ruled the area where Peter the people are living, the Peter are writing to. And Emperor Nero ruled all the way from 37 all the way to 68 AD. And Nero is considered one of the most evil dictators of all times. Nero wreaked havoc on the Roman Empire. He burnt entire cities. He murdered thousands of people, including every single person in his family. People were stabbed. They were burned. They were boiled. They were crucified and impaled. And it's believed that Nero was the one who started the big fire of Rome that burned through most of Rome, and he blamed it on the Christians. And as a result, Christians came under this devastating time of persecution. And it was under this persecution by Nero that Peter, who wrote this letter, was executed. And here Peter says in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. We do not live in the same era as those who Peter was actually writing to at that time. For them, trying to hold fast to the gospel may have cost them their lives. They are trying to live as one who is chosen by God while being persecuted by one of the most evil dictators of all times. And I know for us it's difficult sometimes to be subject to our leaders, but we wouldn't put them in the same category. Why is Peter telling his readers to be subject to every human institution, to the emperor as supreme, knowing who the emperor is? Now, before I go into why Peter is writing this, I'm just going to point out one thing. The idea here of being subject to is the same word as being submitting or submitting to. I'm using the SV here. You may be at home using the NIV. And the NIV translated, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And so every time we see this word being subject to, it may be uh, translated uh, submitting to. It's the same word. And it means that we accept the authority of others. We accept the position held by another person. We accept their authority and we live under their authority. And Peter goes from this broad view of being subject to every human institution to a more general case where it says servants need to be subject to their masters and then focuses specifically on one example, on the example of how this may play out in a marriage with wives and with husbands. 
And as we look at what it means for us, I want to point out that there is a time and a place where we need to put the authority of God over the authority of humans. So there may be times when we do not go along with what is being done. There may be times when we need to stand out, where we need to say no, and where we need to say enough is enough. And when this happens, it may cause unjust suffering. So let's begin at looking at this passage again in more detail, starting in verse 13. It says, we are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor's supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And the big question here is why? Why is Peter telling his readers to be subject to every human institution? And we find the answer, thankfully, in verse 16. Read with me verse 16 where it says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We are to live as people who are free. We are free because as Peter has explained in chapter 1, we have been ransomed from our futile ways by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The price has been paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. And Peter says it again, if you've missed it in chapter 1, he says it again in chapter 2, verse 24. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. And so how do we live? We live as people who are free. We no longer live as those who are slaves, trapped, who are subject and oppressed by human institutions, whether it be to the emperor's supreme or to the governor. We do not live in fear of those who exercise power over us, who has, have influence over us. We do not live in fear of human institutions. We honor everyone. We love the brotherhood. We fear God. We honor the emperor. We live as those who are free, and as those who are free, we do not use our freedom to cover up evil. But we live as servants of God. And as servants of God, we say to him, not my will, but yours be done. And what God does here in response to this is so countercultural. It is against everything that is in our human nature. Do you know what he does? He sends us back to be subject to every human institution. He sends us back to the exact thing that we have just been freed from. 
but it's for a different reason. He has a different purpose for us. Now we are subject for the Lord's sake and for his glory. We are subject to the emperor. We are subject to the governors. In verse 18, it says, masters, be subject to servants, be subject to your masters. And in three, verse one, it says, wives, be subject to your husbands. And the reason is for the Lord's sake and for his glory. And we do it because we know what Christ has done for us. And we have been left an example to follow, to walk in his steps. We do it because we fear God. We do it because we know that we were were ransomed from our futile ways, because we were not a people, but now we are God's people. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We no longer are focusing on ourselves inwards and how we can better ourselves in this life. We are more concerned about others. We are more concerned about the people we know, the people we care about, the people we love. And we know that we do not have the ability to change their hearts. And so we come before the Almighty God and say to Him, Not my will, but yours be done. And He sends us back to be subject for His sake to every human institution. And just as God sent his son into the world, he sends us into the world. And Peter explains exactly what this is going to mean for us. He explains exactly what is going to happen as we follow Christ's example and we follow in his steps. Read with me starting from verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We are to follow the example of Jesus Christ, following in his steps. And the most evident example of this is when Jesus prays to his father on the Mount of Gethsemane uh, just before he was arrested. And it says this in Luke chapter 22. Um, There in Luke chapter 22, there's the Son of God, and for our sake, he prays. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And when Jesus was arrested, Peter, still not quite sure of what was going on and how he should act, he actually grabs the swords and cuts off one of the ears of the servants of the high priest. 
and Peter is there willing to fight, but Jesus stops him, and Jesus is led away. And what's really interesting is it says, it tells us that the rest of the disciples fled, but Peter follows Jesus. And Peter watches on as Jesus was subjected to every ruler and authority. Peter watched on as people spoke unjustly against Jesus. Peter watched on as Jesus, being subject to every institution, was mocked, was beaten, and was killed. And Peter says, follow in his footsteps. And so we are to do just that. So follow along with me in verse 23. It says, just as Christ was reviled, but did not revile in return, we are going to be reviled and we cannot revile in return. And just as he suffered and did not threaten, we too are going to suffer and we cannot threaten those whom God has put in a position above us. And just as he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, we must continue to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Because we've already learned that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. Now, I can remember having a chat uh, with my wife, Ella, before I was interviewed for this job as the assistant minister here. Now, I have not had a lot of experience going to interviews over the years, and so I asked Ella, I said, what do I do in this interview? How do I prepare for this interview? And she gave me some great advice. She said, don't worry about it. All you need to do is when they ask you a question, stop and think about your answer. Don't answer straight away. It's okay. Just think about your answer, and then you'll be fine. And I thought to myself, that's great advice. Perfect. Preparation done. I'm ready to go. And so off I went to the interview. And while I was sitting there in the interview uh, um, answering questions, somebody who will be named, will not be named at this point, asked me this question. And the question was, how do you deal with conflict? How do you deal with conflict? How have you dealt with conflict in your life? And so I did exactly what Ella said. I stopped and I thought about it. And I thought back in my life all the way to when I was a student. And I thought to myself, how did I deal with conflict when I was a young student when I had teachers over me? And then I thought, well, when I became a teacher, how did I deal with it then, dealing with students and parents? And then when I came an apprentice carpenter, and every day I had people telling me what to do, it seemed like every second of the day, how did I deal with conflict then? Or as a builder, how do I deal with the conflict of having apprentices below me and also dealing with people who I'm working with in their house? And I realized 
that you deal with conflict differently depending on every situation. The way you act and the way you react is different. And it depends on whether you're a boss or a servant. It depends whether you're being threatened or not. It depends whether you feel like it's being just or someone is being unjust. The way you deal with it is different. I can't remember exactly what I said to the answer, but I know I actually didn't even really answer the question. Oftentimes I wonder how I got this job, and I remember that time and I think, well, that was definitely not how I got the job, by answering that question. But right now I'm going to ask you the same question. How do you deal with conflict? How are you dealing with conflict in the situation you are in at the moment? In the situation that God has sent you back into? In your workplace, in your school, with your mates, with your friends, with your family, in your marriage? How are you reacting when people speak against you as evildoers? How are you enduring the sorrow? How are you enduring the suffering that you are facing? How are you coping with the state of the world because of COVID and the power given to our leaders at the moment to impose restrictions on us and confine us to our homes? How are you dealing with that? And because everyone deals with it differently depending on the situation, because everyone is going through something different, it's up to you to consider how you can take the word of God found here and how you can apply it to your situation and how it can influence your specific situation. But when you do confront these situations, knowing that you are living as one who is free, who has been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ, do not use your freedom to cover up for evil, but to live as servants of God and say to him, not my will, but yours be done. And just know that he is the one who has sent you back into that situation, in the very situation that you are freed from, and that you are subject for his sake and for his glory. Now let's look at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The very first word here, likewise, grounds this passage in what has been said in chapter 2. It's a specific example that focuses on wives who have non-Christian husbands. And Peter knew that there would be wives in this exact situation. Wives would become followers of Jesus Christ. And, the quest, and they would then question their position. What did they do? How did, their, how did they live in their marriage? And so Peter uses this example of how wives are to live as those who are free. 
and who use their freedom to serve God and come before God and say, not my will, but yours be done. And once again, God sends them back into the same situation in which they have been freed from. He sends them back into that marriage. And there are wives in our church today that are in this exact position. And if you are in this position Please know and be encouraged today that your respectful and pure conduct can be used by God and can make a difference and help them come to a place where your husbands will glorify God on the day of visitation. This newfound freedom does not give you the right or the ability to look elsewhere for a husband. Do not use your freedom you have in Christ to cover up for evil. So if you find yourself in this situation, what do you do? How do you live? Specifically, it says you conduct yourself in your marriage in a way that will mean that your husband will see your respectful and pure conduct, that they may see your good deeds and they may glorify God. They may be one without a word. The way that they will be won over is not going to be through the braiding of hair, it says this, and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. That is not going to be the way that they are one. But he will adore you through the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is precious. And as an example... It is not just for those who find themselves in this exact position, but it is actually here for all of us to learn from. I am a man who is married to a believing wife, but this is still relevant to me. It is relevant whether you are single or married, whether you are a male or a female. I want to live as one who by my conduct some may be one. Those who do not know Christ might come to know Christ. And I am to do so, not with some outward adorning, but as an inward adorning. I want to be known for my imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, so that someone I know may be one without a word but by my conduct. And now to husbands. Peter starts with the word likewise, and let's read it. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And because he starts with likewise, once again, everything that has been said up to this point Uh, applies to husbands as well. And Peter uses a phrase that we really don't like that sits uncomfortably for us. He says, he uses the phrase weaker vessel. This phrase does not mean that a woman's identity or the wife's identity 
is any different from that of their husbands. It clearly says that they are heirs with you of the grace of life. They are built up into the same spiritual house. It does not mean that they are weaker in any way, shape, or form in their intellect or their moral IQ. The passage does not give grounds for husbands to implement some form of position above their wives when it comes to spiritual matters. It just does not say that in this passage. It actually says exactly the opposite. There is no difference in the way that God sees men and women, husbands and wives. There is no difference in our identity. It has been given to us by God, and they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So what is this referring to as the weaker vessel? I believe that it's referring to the fact that most of the time, husbands are physically stronger than their wives. And as a result, it is more common for husbands to abuse their wives and physically beat them. And this is part of the fall. This is part of our former ignorance. It is part of the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. And there is no place for it in a marriage. This passage warns Christian husbands against bullying their wives. And I don't need to show you or try and prove to you how prevalent this is today in our society. And at a time when we are confined to our homes with our wives, this only becomes a bigger issue and a more noticeable problem. It is a way that we use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. And Peter will have none of it. And so husbands, with me, I am to live with my wife in an understanding way, showing honor to her. And this is by no means something that I can put on a list and tick off. This cannot be a New Year's resolution where one year you think, I'm going to honor my wife, and by the end of the year go, done, tick. This is definitely not something that I can say that I have achieved in my marriage. And so I cannot be proud of achieving this. Now, when Al and I started going out, we came to our first Valentine's Day, and I asked her, I said, so Valentine's Day, is this something that you enjoy? Is this something that you want me to make much of? And she said to me, don't be ridiculous. This is just a day when people can sell cards and sell flowers. I deserve to be loved every day. And she went as far as to say, if you need somebody else to tell you how to show me that I'm to be loved, I will be offended. And so, note to self, Valentine's Day is out. But I better show my wife that I love her every single day. Every day I am called to honor my wife and to show her how much I love her. 
not just on Valentine's Day, because she is an heir of the grace of life. And finally, this passage concludes with the phrase, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I'm going to leave this point today because I've spoken for long enough and because Peter has a lot more to say about prayer in the next section of chapter 3 and on to chapter 4. And so what this means will become clearer to us as we look at the rest of the chapter. And so you might like to ask a question now in Slido. You can go to slido.com and ask a question Um, I've skimmed through this passage, and so you may like to ask a question about something I haven't touched on uh, this morning. I will be back in about 90 seconds uh, to answer some of those questions. Thank you. Okay, I've got two questions here uh, that I would like to answer. The first question says, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, seems to be addressed not only to wives of non-believing husbands, but to Christian wives more generally. Do you agree? And the answer is yes, I do agree. Uh, It does say wives be subject to your own husbands, so that's just a general Um, statement to all wives, but then it just uses a specific example of how this could be seen to glorify God and to win some who do not know him. And uh, so definitely, I I think the answer is yes, I do agree with that. Um, But I also agree, as an example, like I said, we should all be considering what it means for us. Uh, The second question by Mike says, when is it okay to defy the government? And from this passage, it doesn't tell us when it is okay to defy the government. And so the answer is, from this passage, he actually doesn't even talk about defying the government. It talks about being subject to the government for the Lord's sake. Uh, So... um, I wouldn't say never. 
but in this passage, it doesn't even give us this option to do so. And like I said, when Peter was uh, following Jesus and seeing his example, I don't see a time there when Jesus defied the government as he was leading to his death. And so I don't think mentally we should be thinking, by following Jesus, we can somehow defy the government. I think we should be thinking, by following Jesus, we are going to be subject, and there are going to be consequences that are not going to go in our favor when we do so. And then the final question I'm going to look at is, how does obedience apply to draconian laws banning protests. I think once again, this passage does not really go into that at all. Um, And so once again, think about how you can apply this to your life. Think about what this means for you. Um, But obviously, this passage wants us to act a particular way for God's glory so that we can be different and so that we can stand out. Um, So I hope that that helped you. I'm going to pray quickly, and then we are going to have another song. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, 